Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, we also have something special for you. We have two great guests on the podcast. A little later on, I'm going to speak with Miriam Bale, the artistic director of Indie Memphis Film Festival. We'll talk briefly at the end of this episode about all sorts of things, programming a festival that captures the spirit of Memphis, inviting film critics of color to her festival, and of course, ghost and genre films. But before we get to that, we must get to our first guest. Today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Gigi Saul Guerrero here. Hi, Gigi. Hola, how are you? Great. Um, Gigi's... I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> I know. She's, she's calling up from uh, from Vancouver, where uh, they're getting dumped with snow, and, and we've got like <laughs> 75 degree temperatures down here. So we've just got very different moods, I think. I think so. And very different clothes, too, right now. <laughs> I know. Although I get cold very quickly, so I'm bundled up. Um, for those of you who aren't as familiar with Gigi's work, please let me give you an introduction. Gigi is a Mexican director and actress living in Vancouver, Canada. She's been described by Variety as part of the new wave of Latino talent and has been praised as one of the top emerging directors in the horror genre by Empire, Dread Central, and Bloody Disgusting. But a lot of her career in film started when Gigi co-founded Lucha Gore Productions in 2013 in Vancouver with Luke Bramley and Rainer Shima. The company is commonly known as La Muneca del Terror. That's when she uh, wrote uh, and directed a handful of genre shorts like El Matador, Feliz Complianos, Madre de Dios, and El Gigante, which is streaming on Shutter right now. Um, the last one you said, El Gigante, that one's streaming on Shutter right now? It sure is. Oh, okay, great. Uh, she also has some viral hits like uh, Luchagor Christmas and Evil Dead in 60 Seconds. And in 2014, Gigi participated in the Mexican horror anthology Mexico Barbaro, which it, uh, with its Day of the Dead segment uh, will, while still in film school. Her series with Warner Brothers Stage 13, La Quinceanera, won the Audience Award at the 2017 Morbido uh, Film Festival. All of this led up to Gigi's feature debut, Culture Shock, starring Martha Higreda as a young woman who crosses the border into the U.S. and wakes up to a Stepford nightmare, uh, including Barbara Crampton, a former guest of Switchblade Sisters. The film was part of Blumhouse's Into the Dark series and is available to watch on Hulu right now. Gigi also directed an episode of The Purge Season 2, and you can see her work in three upcoming anthology films, The Source of Shadows, Aztec, and 28. Um, so, Gigi, you're not too busy is what you're saying, right? Yeah, no. I mean, I don't really know what sleep is right now. <laughs> but... seems, yeah, seems... Thank you. Thank you for that lovely intro. I think you need to introduce me all the time. You oh, yeah. You sound so wonderful. <laughs> and I think that also uh, before um, or after I wrote this bio that you also had a new announcement coming up. Is that correct? That is very correct. Very correct. And can you tell our listeners where, where you're, you're headed next? Yeah, uh, I'm very, very lucky. I started the year 2020 with an awesome, gory blessing, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm directing my first theatrical um, debut, uh, a horror movie called, as of right now, 1031 with Orion Pictures and produced by Eli Roth. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, you know, I just jumped right into it uh, last minute and we're working on it right now, actually, here in Vancouver. And I'm very happy because um, not only do I get to work uh, where I live and work with many of the fellow 
storytellers here in Vancouver, but I was able to bring along my longtime producing partner, Rainer Shima from Luchagor, mm-hmm. into the project as well. So he'll be co-producing. Um, I'm so excited. This movie is a total throwback to, you know, the holiday we all love of Halloween and just a very, very different take um, on the holiday. And uh, I, I really look forward to it. That's awesome. Um, Gigi, the movie that you chose to talk about today is Don't Breathe. Could you perhaps give (laughs) us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films? Oh, man. Well, when I first saw uh, the director's film, um, the remake of Evil Dead, um, the director's name is Fede Alvarez, Mm -hmm. I was like, who is this crazy guy? And it had been (laughs) so long since I've seen such not just elevated gore but just such cringe-worthy shots and uh, and I'm a big fan of that I'm known in my work to have some pretty insane graphic uh, violence in a lot of my short films mm-hmm. and it had been a while since I seen anything like that in the theaters so I was very excited to see Don't Breathe and he just proved to show that he really is not just a master of um, gritty gore and horror but He's incredible with his suspense and his and the thriller genre. I think Don't Breathe really taps into both thriller, uh, suspense, and horror. And, and I think Fede is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into a lot of that in the main discussion. But for those of you who haven't seen Don't Breathe, today's episode will give you some spoilers. But that shouldn't stop you uh, from listening before you watch. Um, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. And as many times as I've said it, I still believe it. So still, if you would like to pause and watch Don't Breathe, go ahead. This is your shot. Now that you're back, let me introduce Don't Breathe. Written by Fede Alvarez and Rodo Sayoguesa, a, and directed by Alvarez for release in 2016, Don't Breathe stars Jane Levy as Rocky, Dylan Minette as Alex, and Daniel Zavato as Money, three friends in Detroit who get by by breaking into houses. Money gets a tip that there's $300,000 stashed in a house with a blind veteran whose daughter got killed in a car crash. Well, story goes, some preppy girl a few years ago ran over this guy's daughter. Jesus. Daughter dies, and this preppy, rich-ass family pays him off. Gives him a big-ass sediment. Sediment. Blow me your honor. All right? This guy is sitting on at least 300K. Boom! They break into the house thinking this is going to be their big hall where they can live out their dreams and stop breaking into houses, but they can't find the cash. Money finally sees a locked door and he shoots at the lock, but this also wakes up Norman, the veteran played by Stephen Lang. Norman overpowers Money while Rocky and Alex hide. How many of you are there? How many? Man, I just fucking me. Just let me go. <laughs> money says he's alone. Then Norman kills him. Rocky spies him checking his money in the safe and steals the money after Norman has gone back. But Norman trips over Roxy, Rocky's shoes and realizes that there are others in the house. And thus begins the big action. Rocky and Alex flee into the locked basement and find the wealthy woman who killed Norman's daughter chained up. She's the one who killed his daughter. We have to get her out of here. No, 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 Rocky. We don't have time. We'll we'll get out of here and we'll call the cops. 
where Norman has been attempting to artificially inseminate her to give birth to his new daughter. Norman shoots at them but ends up killing the woman instead. Norman shuts off the lights and now they're all in the dark. Alex eventually knocks out Norman and they run back upstairs. Then the dog wakes up and chases them into the barred bathroom. Rocky escapes through a ventilation shaft, but the dog attacks Alex and then he falls out a window. Norman attacks Alex with garden shears after shooting him down from this glass uh, ceiling. Norman captures Rocky and chains her up to replace the woman he shot. He prepares to inseminate her. Not a rapist. I never forced myself on her. Stop. I promised I would set her free just as soon as she gave me a child. Now she's gone, but I'm done waiting. Alex, however, survived by tricking Norman and saves Rocky. But as they leave, Norman breaks free and shoots and kills Alex. Then Rocky's contending with the dog, which she traps in a car trunk and which burrows to get her. And then she has to go back into the house, but turns on the alarm system, confusing Norman before pushing him down the stairs and escaping with the money. She takes off with her little sis to Los Angeles as news reports Norman's alive. Last night, two burglars broke into his home and attempted to rob brutally attack him. This visually impaired man was able to defend himself, shooting and killing both his attackers on the spot. Now the man did sustain some injuries, but doctors say he is in stable condition. He'll be released from the hospital soon and able to return to his home. But no mention of Rocky and the missing money. So it's a little open-ended on that. That is the uh, the basics of Don't Breathe. But as Gigi was saying, a lot of this has to do with the way that uh, Fede is bringing out the terror and suspense of not knowing where someone is and being kind of lost in the dark. Um, one thing I would like to start with is casting, um, because the producers at some point, um, you know, Alvarez was... Everything was ready to go, and yet he still didn't have his Rocky. And he had asked Jane Levy before if she was available, but she ended up having to be in a different movie. And so he was casting other people, and he was reading other people, and no one seemed to fit the role. He just couldn't find the right person. And then he said, quote, at the last second, I saw that Jane had become available because she posts a photo on her Instagram showing that she's home because her other movie had fallen apart. I asked her if she wanted to come do Man in the Dark, which was the title at that point, and she was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. She got on a plane and was there seven or eight days before we started shooting. Those days were pretty intense, going through the script and having a discussion about motivation in every scene. Why would you run this way or that way? To have those conversations in pre-production and not on set because, you know, it takes a lot of time and everyone gets pissed because the crew is just waiting for you to reach a conclusion and that's no good so there's a lot in that quote but let's get into the casting part of that for you what do you think is kind of the hardest part of finding that that leading person in your in your films yeah definitely I mean I'm it, it's it's really interesting I actually didn't know that about Jane Levy and I think she's incredible I actually use her as a reference in a lot in a lot of stuff oh you do in a lot of the conversations yeah I think she's She's absolutely amazing, and it's really cool to see when a director, you know, brings uh, that final girl into a horror film and just really believes in it. I, I think that's so, so important, and I'm just glad Fede went with his gut. Mm -hmm. um, 
you yeah, know, for myself. You could have uh, any actor, right? But yeah. then, you know, if you... Like, you have to have your heart set on a lot of actors at some point, you know, and, and be disappointed. 100%. 100%. And for me, for myself, um, I started my career in acting. So I... I feel I've always had that that wonderful advantage that I really understand what's going on on the other side. Mm-hmm. And there's such a big part and a big element that, that I look for is that trust between a director and an actor, even in the casting room or in the chemistry read. That's the first thing I look for is is this actor trusting me in what I'm telling them? Are they trusting in the direction uh that I'm advising them to take. Mm-hmm. And also, am I trusting them when they call me out? When they call me out? Because I think one of the most important things that I've learned uh, and advice that I've gotten is that really good actors, they're they're like lie detectors in a way too. Mm-hmm. Like they can very, very much uh, understand when, uh, when it doesn't really fit in their world and the reality of the character and they can call you out on that so you you definitely on the director's side you have to trust that they'll they'll tell you well you there's know? i mean there's also the 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 trust of um working with an actor multiple times too because um uh, alvarez had worked with jane um mm-hmm. in evil dead and that was one of the reasons why he had immediately thought of her is this um person that you already know can carry the movie and that you already have a shorthand with because you've gone through the hardest parts in the, the first film and i'm you know i think that that seems like uh a just really practical, but but B, you know, like you you would like to hopefully develop a relationship with actors and uh, between actors and directors for for long term. I mean, uh, a lot of the greats have done that, I, and I'm you know I'm curious is is that how you feel about working with your actors? One hundred percent. Once you build that relationship and that trust, um, you. You can only imagine like what other incredible characters you're gonna create with them. You know, one of the excited uh, actors I've worked with is is everyone I worked with on Culture Shock. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the opportunity to really work with with uh, like Blumhouse gave me that chance to work with such professional uh, actors. Not that I didn't before, but this was such a high caliber of acting that um, I didn't have when I was making my short films or when I was in school. Mm-hmm. When I worked with Martha Igareda uh, and Richard Cabral, uh, the leads in Culture Shock, man, it, you, you get so excited and pumped up when they bring that to the camera, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, I only imagine what else are we gonna do together? You know, same, I was so incredibly excited to have Barbara Crampton and Sean Ashmore, all those guys, but I think once you have that feeling, what else are we going to create together? It's 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 like waiting for that cake to come out of the oven. Like, all right, guys, let's eat this together again. You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's exciting. It's so exciting. I think as a storyteller, man, what, my most favorite is is working with the actors. Uh, it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful um, thing that happens on set. It's really cool. Well, I mean, it's so... Alvarez in this interview, he also, or in this um, this question, the answer that he had given, he also talks about the 
doing the work so, so much in, in pre-production with your actors so that they know every single motivation, every single um, reason for why they're saying or doing things in scene. Um, mm-hmm. And he's talking about doing that before because um, everyone is mad if you're stopping to try to figure it out in the moment. Um, I know that that's not always necessary for you know lower budget films. Sometimes you have to figure things out on set, but it does seem like that's um, you know preferable <laughs> to have that prep with actors. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I would agree with that. I haven't had that opportunity. <laughs> I've had to just again really establish, you know, and, and and walk with your with the right foot, you know, into the door that the actor and you are going to really look at each other and trust each other to figure it out. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. of course, if you have that opportunity to prep it before, incredible. But we don't always get that chance. Yeah. Then right? how Sometimes, do you do that? And on, yeah. You know, how do you do it in in a way that feels like you're not stalling the production if if you have to do it on set? Mm-hmm. For for my experience, I think keeping everyone updated is the most important element. Uh, that's one of the most important things for me. I've never felt anybody waiting on me before. Um, because I'm, I like to, I like to say out loud what we're doing next. I like everybody to know out loud uh, what my blocking is, what my plan is, what the the scene is gonna feel and look like. Um, I know for a lot of di- directors, they like to do their blocking more internally and more quietly. It's just you, the actor, first AD, and the and the cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And then everyone I, reacts. I'm Latina, to that. baby. Like I do it loud. <laughs> like I do it loud, and I do it excited. I, like I want everybody involved and especially something like culture shock you know we really didn't have time like that 16 day shoot two weeks and a little bit of prep you know it's 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 not a lot so for me I need a crew that's going to trust me as much as the actor mm-hmm. uh, and that's you know it's my responsibility to show up incredibly prepared and I have to know the script back and forth and uh, so my goal I, I you know if it's with the actor, the first thing I will remind them is exactly what just happened before in the story and exactly what's going to happen next. I find that really helps, especially when, again, I, I, if I don't have the opportunity like Faded to prep it before, um, it, that's, that's one of the key, key points that I will bring up to the actor. This just happened. This is going to happen. Let's talk about it. Okay. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining you with a bullhorn um, on like a stool. <laughs> yeah, you, you pretty much described me right. Um, on the per- on the set of the Purge, they let me hold on to a uh, how you get like a megaphone. Yes. Oh, big mistake, baby. Big mistake. Cause I I was <laughs> I was like, oh my god, I could use this, and I did, and they took it away from me uh, yeah. a few days later. Yeah, it was too much. <laughs> it was too much. Uh, um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get a little bit more into uh, Lang's process, into uh, Levy's process, and into Alvarez's process, and sound design, and all of these other things. So uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. All right, Adam. Uh, Maximum Fun wants us to record like a promo to tell people that they should listen to The Greatest Generation. You want to do that? 
No, I am tired of all the extra work. I just wanted to talk about Star Trek with my friend. I, I think it, it would be good to like try and get some new listeners by appealing to the audiences of other shows. Like this, this will only take a minute or two. It could be good for us. We sit down for an hour every week and talk about a Star Trek episode and make a bunch of idiotic fart jokes about it. It's embarrassing. If it got out that we made this show, I think it would make us unemployable. Adam, I have bad news for you. We have tens of thousands of listeners at MaximumFun.org. Oh my god. I think I'm going to throw up. The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. Every Monday on MaximumFun.org. I'm really going to be sick. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Gigi Saul Guerrero uh, up in Vancouver, Canada, and we're talking about Don't Breathe. Um, bum, bum, bow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the sound effects. Hey, uh, I got many more. You just let me know. I'll cue it up. There's going to be an air horn coming up later on. You've got all of your own uh, <laughs> tools back there. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to get into a little bit more about uh, how Lang was preparing for um, this character who doesn't speak and who can't see and who is going through quite a few emotions while he's uh, performing action. So uh, Alvarez said, quote, he was wearing lenses to make his eyes look like they look in the movie, and that would impair 70% of his sight. In low conditions, he actually couldn't see anything. He didn't have to fake most of the blindness most of the time. He couldn't really see. When he walked on set, someone was carrying him by the hand, avoiding cables. They would put him on the side, and he would stay there, idle, like a character in a video game. I would go and piss him off. I'd go and tell him, these fucking kids, they're breaking into your house. They're, they're somewhere in the house. You don't know where they are, but they have your money, and that's the last thing you have, and that money is your daughter, man. They're taking the last thing that represents her. I'll be back in a second. <laughs> and he was like, fuck them, fuck them, fuck them. Oh my He God. was just mouthing all these hate words <laughs> toward them then all i had to do was scream action and let the leash go Gigi, what the fuck <laughs> that is i'm so pumped you told me this i i'm not gonna i'm not trying to sound like crazy or anything but i'm so pumped you're telling me this because i do the same thing <laughs> I do the exact same. oh that is so cool you know it really gets man like as an actress, like I, I had that experience once where the director is literally yelling me, what's up? And you get so anxious and like it gets under your skin sometimes and mm -hmm. it really helps. Um, man, that's so cool. Like, <laughs> it, dude, it works. Anybody listening, you know, just be careful how much swearing you use or how intense you are. <laughs> but it, it really works. I tell my students here because uh, I teach directing here at Vancouver Film School. And I've, I've shared that with them. Really use the environment. Really get into your actor's skin sometimes. It really helps them get there. I remember on Culture Shock, the one day of press. Okay. The one day that press came <laughs> to the set yeah. was the day. Was, was, again, spoilers if you haven't seen Culture Shock, so watch out. Uh, the one day that press decided to show up. And I didn't know they, they were there yet, but they were, you know, put in Video Village to watch. Mm -hmm. And it was right during um, the death scene of 
Marisol's rapist. Mm-hmm. And I was yelling at the top of my lungs, he raped you. What you going to do? What you going to do now? <laughs> Fucking kill the bastard. Like I was I was yelling at the top of my lungs. And and then for his coverage, I was like, I was like, threaten the threaten that bitch, threaten that whore. Like I was. But it was in Spanish. So luckily, not everyone understood. But it, but you know, you know, like novelas, right? We sound yeah. way more intense. Mm-hmm. You know, like we sound a lot more intense. That's why dating Latinos is really hard because everyone thinks we're super dramatic. So when I was yelling, "Amenaza la cabrón, hijo de tu puta madre," like I was just going. And so I walk back to Video Village, and it, all the press guys are there: Dread Central, LA Times. They're all just sitting there with their eyes wide. And only one of them was a Mexican journalist. And mm-hmm. she was like, amen, sister. That's all she said to me. I was like, I'm going to go back to set, guys. Welcome. Uh, see you later. You know? <laughs> like, I had no idea they were there. But uh, it works. Uh, long story short, it, it, I'm just so happy. I'm not, I'm not the only one that, that would do that. <laughs> Oh, this is a great thing for me to segue into the next point, because um, he has some really great thoughts on the sound design of a jump scare, too. Um, He said, quote, most of the jump scares in this movie don't have a music sting. Most horror movies will give you a big orchestra hit because they're scary. We do it in a different way. Think about the dog in the window, the first jump scare. There's no music. It's just the sound of the dog hitting the car in the metal. That creates a big scare, usually. The guy coming out of the cellar right in front of uh, a character. There's no music there, just the crack of the door sounding very loud. It was another leap of faith. And let's hope that it doesn't work, that it works without music. <laughs> and I think it did well, work yeah. without music. Yeah, totally. I mean, heck, like it's just he's exactly thinking, how do we get scared in real life? I'm not walking around with music playing. You know? Yeah, there's like, no Bernard like, Herman. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they did that on Family Guy that he's always walking with with a song, <laughs> and they make fun of that. In real life, we don't, you know, we're not blessed with uh, our own soundtrack. So what do we get scared of is real sounds, real things that hit that that you know a metal hits or something falls, and it's exactly what makes us scared. And I think, uh, you know, movies like Don't Breathe, movies like, you know, Funny Games, or even No Country for Old Men, you know, they they rely on just the diegetic sounds in the screen, and you know if they play from diegetic and non-diegetic, the sound designers and the directors just really know which ones are going to be more amplified than the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Don't Breathe, it's exactly what you're saying. You know, Fate is talking about the door, the actual dog, the actual metal, like the actual stuff in the environment is what's going to cause us to jump because that's yeah. the reality of things. We, Our brain can already, you know, like we already know what like that sounds so is going to trigger us. Yeah. Um, and it and it's a, not an additional yeah, texture relying too. on music. It's I I feel like it gives a kind of three dimensionality to the movie. The, yes. You know those those things where you feel like uh, almost tactile in a sense because you're you're hearing the the objects move in in the picture. You're you're hearing um, and seeing these specific things that, that it feels like you can touch them because they're being used and um, uh, so organically within the movie. I think that you know jump scares are. Uh, a thing that people are constant. I'm I'm okay with jump scares. I think that 
they are, you know, the horror genre has uh, always had jump scares. I think sometimes you can't rely only on jump scares, but why not? You know, but a lot of people think that they're kind of cheap or cheesy. And I'm wondering what your opinion is on them and, and how to build them. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you, I, I don't mind them. I think it just, it depends so much on the kind of movie, you know, on the kind of horror movie yeah. you're watching. Like, there's so many subgenres out there. And some definitely should have and some shouldn't. It, it really depends on the approach. Like, for me, <laughs> and I'm about to, to share my deepest weakness, but, like, for me, as a, as a true Catholic Mexican girl, I'm... <laughs> terrified of movies with uh with religion and demons and the devil and possession oh yeah i i have i have a serious serious fear because i believe in all of it ghosts you you tell me and i believe movies like that because it's not a real thing for many people uh it's 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 the kind of movies that you can create the jump scare. You can create a world that we can't all relate to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, jump scares in that sense, in just not just for um, paranormal kind of movies, but in movies where I find there's no actual reality to it for many people. I I personally think jump scare jump scares are great. Don't rely on them always, but it just depends. It depends so much on the storytelling because mm-hmm. you can't just throw jump scare after jump scare after jump, you know, yep. and that's all you rely to. Then, yes, I'm going to feel the same as others that, oh, that's just a cheap way to do it. But yeah, it becomes if, fatiguing you know, after a while if it's if it's too much. So it's finding that kind exactly. of right. Yeah, exactly. you got to find a good balance to make it work. Uh, and many movies do a great job, do a really good job. Yeah. Um. Uh, and I think I like, but the thing is that I love Alvarez, Alvarez's like um, kind of commitment to a jump scare here and a commitment to um, a, an earned jump scare. And everything exactly. is, it doesn't have to be just like a person popping up. It's a, it's a sound cue that is uh, particularly um, frightening specifically for this environment in the same way that he has you know kind of changed his style of directing and writing to fit this particular movie as you're talking about there's subgenres it, it's really crucial that a director can kind of um, reorient themselves and and find a new way into a uh, into a script and and their process um, yeah totally because that script analysis it, it's really up to that director it's really up to that storyteller to break it down and and give it to us, you know, like none of us can really tell them uh, which direction to take, really. Uh, so it's up to them. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into um, a little more of the process of uh, how they were scripting out the kind of uh, intense twists and turns within the single location. And then also a little bit more about the process of some of the actors and uh, their general idea of um, camera work and how to how to make it work in such a uh, limited environment. So we'll be right back. This is Rocket Ship One. Come in, Mission Control. This is Mission Control. Go ahead. We have incoming, and it looks big. Can you identify? It looks like some sort of pledge drive. Affirmative. It's Max Fun Drive. That's a verified Max Fun Drive. Countdown to Max Fun Drive is initiated. Can you project a time to intercept? 
Based on the current trajectory, next fun drive will be here from March 16 to March 27. March 16 to March 27, Roger. Rocket Ship One, can you confirm a visual on common Max Fun Drive phenomena, such as the best episodes of the year, bonus content, and special gifts for new and upgrading monthly members? We have a visual. Great episodes, bonus content, premium gifts confirmed, and more. Sure sounds quiet down there. Mission Control, what's your status? All systems go, Rocket Ship One. Just catching up on our favorite Max Fun shows so we can tune into Max Fun Drive episodes between March 16 and March 27. Over and out. <laughs> Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Gigi Saul Guerrero, and we're talking about Don't, don't Breathe. breathe. <laughs> I almost said it in Spanish, but I, I won't challenge the listeners too much. Say <laughs> it in Spanish. No respires. But see, it sounds sexy. Anything you say, anything you say, you say in Spanish, we're gonna make it sound really sexy. Um, well, yeah, this movie is very sexy. If you guys haven't seen, <laughs> <laughs> definitely the ending too. Yeah, people are gonna be so disappointed. They're like, "This is not sexy at all. This makes me feel really <laughs> bad and weird." <laughs> right? Oh man. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, again, like the the scripting of the choices that these characters are making, because the choices that the characters are making feel natural they don't feel like they are kind of um kind of forced upon these characters they feel like they are something that someone may choose to do in this, a particular situation like this is is kind of heightened as it is um alvarez said quote the characters tend to behave like you would behave in normal life, and the decisions they make are pretty clever most of the time. When you want to yell advice like, go the other way, they'll go the other way, but it ends up really bad. So you end up running out of advice for the characters. What I love about this particular scene, and, and you know, they're talking about uh, uh, them going back into the basement, is that you don't know what to tell her to do. She's inside the car now. The money is outside. The dog is outside. No keys. So what now? And then she gives you a solution you haven't thought of. I thought the solution was pretty clever. It's one of my favorites as well. Um, so the ending is just like, what the hell does she do? She go into the basement? Does she go into the house? You know, like in the original um, script, he had had that she doesn't go into the car, that she runs away into an abandoned church. And in the, the whole thing is uh, plays out and it's like big and and nutty and it's a huge kind of almost like 80s throwback. And he ended up throwing that out the window and getting a little bit simpler with this, not just because of budget, because they did have a hard time finding a place where they could actually shoot in a church and and all that, but also just because it felt more realistic to the story and that this character had limited choices. So what would she do? She'd be in the car and she figures it out. And I was curious, you know, what were you thinking when you were watching this movie? I mean, were you one of those people where he's talking about trying to yell advice to her? Oh, yeah. I think, you know, I think that's not a bad thing when you're yelling out the advice. That, like, it, I, you, that truly means that you're engaged, good or bad. You know, mm -hmm. I, for me, I was stoked with it when she was running out. I, I think Fede is so smart. Like he really, and also the way he shot it, he really made it like the shot is, is on her, uh, running towards camera when she runs out of the house. Like you don't know what direction she's going to go until they reveal that she's going to go towards the car. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I really didn't know where she was going until she reached the, the car. And that's why I was like, oh, my God, just just drive. Yes. You know, and, and he kept presenting actual things we can relate to. No keys, the stuff outside, the dogs outside. It's just more plausible. Like, yes. it, it, it could totally happen. So her solution, I'm so stoked that he changed that because the solution of how she uh, she gets out of the car and all that is really damn smart and possible and doable. One of the things in film that, uh, you know, that I've... I've learned and that I love to teach the students here is whoever your hero is, make it really believable they can do that in their journey. Mm-hmm. Like, are they that person? Because at the end of the day, nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. But how can you get them to do that incredible, uh, uh, you know, obstacle course that they will get through? Mm-hmm. How do they do it? And this is exactly it. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a very cool challenge for Jane Levy's um a character, and it's more intimate. That of course she's going to go back to the car. What else does she know? Yeah. At that point, right? So when we don't think, uh, when we're <laughs> when we're under pressure, we just think to the th- immediately to the stuff we know. Yeah. So it made total sense. I uh, wanted to talk about one of uh, Alvarez's uh, favorite processes, which is telling your actors one thing but actually doing another. Um, <laughs> he said, "Quote." I think Jane arrived on set and five minutes later she realized this might have been a mistake. A lot of that suffering you see on screen is real. This movie was very hard to make on the actors. On Evil Dead, it was more the physicality of it all, like being covered in blood every day and makeup and all that. On this one, this was a bit more of the psychological torment of what's going on and what she was going to be put through. You have to make sure that the actors are not too relaxed or not too comfortable. You misdirect the actor sometimes and you tell them, you're going to walk down this hallway and the guy's going to come from the left and you prepare for that. But at the last second, you change it and make him come from the right. You get great reactions out of them. Then they just scream at you, but that doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> Could not agree more. I, I'm known to carry a, uh, an air horn in my purse. <laughs> I use it. I Wait, you it. really do? I made that joke I sure earlier. <laughs> I sure do. I sure. <laughs> um, but heck, like that's the thing. If you again, you have that trust that you can do that to an actor. Don't mm-hmm. go too crazy. Uh, you know, like poor Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Oh God, went no, yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That was some serious suffering, but but it works. I, 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 you can totally do that. Heck, they've been doing it for many years. Like even to the. The children actors in Willy Wonka, they, mm-hmm. they didn't show, show to them the set of the Chocolate Factory. You know, until the day they saw it for the first time, they rolled the cameras for that reaction. Oh, yeah. Uh, or Alien, you know? even. They didn't show the uh, the actors the, the alien until they were actually mm-hmm. in scene. And then all of their exactly. faces of awe were real. <laughs> it, 100%. And you can actually see it. Like, I'm so stoked uh, Fetty did that. And you can totally tell. Jane Levy and all all of them, all of the cast, the, the three robbers, they're they're really they're really into it. It's it's really good. And I mean, even the new It chapter one, they didn't show Pennywise to the to the kids for months mm-hmm. in, into shooting, until if you watch it, uh, don't worry, this is not a spoiler to the listeners. But when one of the little boys he he broke his arm and he's on the ground. And he sees Pennywise come right at him for the first time. That's a real mm-hmm. scream. Like that's he he for <laughs> real screamed at the top of his lungs. I mean, they are just children, but 
<laughs> you, I, I'd scare children like that too, but <laughs> but they they really got those kids, man. And you can you can tell the poor little boy like peed himself. Like you can tell that was absolutely terrifying to him to see Pennywise. You can tell in the shot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, that's really cool. You you can totally tell with Jane Levy in many of the moments. Uh, uh, you know. That, that they no, totally she's terrified, like very clearly terrified mm-hmm. in a lot of those shots. And she sells that kind of panic survival mode, like injured dog kind of thing. You know, she just has to get out of this situation as quickly as possible. Um, yes. And very, uh, very quickly as a, a last point, I wanted to talk about um, Alvarez's uh, commitment to every character having shady morals. <laughs> he said, quote, <laughs> you want characters with shady morals. Think of Alfred Hitchcock's movies. Most of the characters have shady morals. Jane Lee stealing money at the beginning of Psycho and in Vertigo and in Strangers on a Train. Everyone would do bad things. I think those characters are a lot of fun and I love them. And... I think that that's something that you were talking about early on, where your allegiances are shifting as the movie goes on, because everyone is doing bad things. <laughs> well, I mean, nobody's perfect, man. Like, we all have to learn from our mistakes, mm-hmm. whether it's a big one or a small. Like, we all, look, we've all lied. We've all done shady morals for our own benefit. We've all done it. Uh, some much more major than others. Some are little white lies. But it, at the end of the day, you have to learn from that mistake because that that is how we humans are, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I I couldn't agree more. I I love I love characters with flaws, all of them, mm-hmm. every single one of them. I actually met uh, the actor that plays Money. Um, we were both on the variety for the the Latinos to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who plays money and and he was talking about that that he really enjoyed going into the mind of someone so dark uh his name's daniel zovato mm-hmm. and uh and we were him and i were talking a lot about how cool it is to really be a flawed character because that's that's the first thing we're going to relate to we all need money maybe mm-hmm. we don't all need to steal but we all know the struggle of having no money Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's it's already there's little check marks in there for us to somewhat feel with these guys of why we're following them into into uh, into this home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it's really smart. Fady showed us a glimpse of Jane Levy's character, Rocky's life in that trailer with his with her little sister and that awful, awful relationship with the mom who's a, an alcoholic, I believe. I, I think I remember. Yeah. Um so even just a, literally the smallest scene like that was enough for me to be like, oh, well, she's just put in a bad situation. That's not in her control. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. And also, you know, Lang's character, you know, Norman. Exactly. Oh, man. I, like, I, I, oh, damn. <laughs> like, that ending is so disturbing. And it's like, I, I, he he has a reason to be so disturbing at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's just brutal. My God, 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great place to wrap up. It's just brutal. Thank it's you so much for joining brutal. me today, Gigi. Thank you for having me. And let's uh, let's do this again. Thank you so much. And let's remind people where they can see your stuff. Um, El Gigante is on Shudder and Culture Shock is available on Hulu. And uh, yes. we're going to keep an eye out for your next feature film. Do you have any idea when that's going to be? Is it uh, 2021? If all goes well, hopefully this year. <laughs> if all goes well. This year. Yeah, okay. so, you know, people can follow me on uh, on uh, on Instagram. Uh, I'm, trust me, I'm like the only Gigi Saul Guerrero out there. So it'll be very easy to find <laughs> me on Instagram, Twitter, as well as uh, Luchador Productions. You can easily find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I'll be posting tons of cool stuff coming up. So definitely follow me there and, and stay tuned. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gigi. Thank you so much. And now for my chat with the artistic director of Indie Memphis Film Festival, Miriam Bale. I wanted to have a special experience for listeners today. So we're having a call-in guest to do a little interview with us. We have Miriam Bale on the line, who is a film writer and also the artistic director of Indie Memphis Film Festival. Hi, Miriam. Hi, April. How are you? Wonderful. One of the things that we wanted to talk to you today uh, about is the idea of working on these um, smaller kind of regional film festivals and what that means to the ecosystem of the film community. Can you talk a little bit about your experience to Indie Memphis? Sure. Um, I am in a really unique place at a regional film festival in Memphis because Memphis is just such a special and strange and wonderful and obviously has this long creative history, especially in music. Um, So for what I do at Indie Memphis, I'm really inspired by the city. Mm -hmm. I've been to other regional fests and they could be like almost anywhere you know they're the sort of what's played at other major festivals and then they come to the cities to um these smaller cities and that's important that's important to get these screened but for me that it's when i visited those it's it's it it again feels like you could be everywhere anywhere yeah um in Memphis, it's like just, I mean, I just, you have to go. Like anyone who hasn't been <laughs> should go just because it's got this. We had Jim Jarmish there this year and he wrote Mystery Train before he had been to Memphis, just inspired. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't been back since he made it. And he was talking about how he went to, you know, Beale Street and it was all touristic and kind of sad. And, but it's got these, um, musical notes on the pavement, like the stars on Hollywood Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how you could just still feel the ghosts of those mu- musicians and that they're everywhere there. And he said, he said in this conversation that the funny thing about ghosts is you can't kill them because they're ghosts. They're just always there Mm -hmm. and so there's like that there's obviously that wonderful history there but also memphis is um a black city it's always been a historically black city and so um i'm i'm black i'm half ethiopian and so when i came to the i'm from california but when i came to work at the festival a big mission was 
to make the film festival feel more like Memphis, Mm -hmm. both in its craziness and excitement and creativity, but also in being really strongly uh, diverse and and really a black film festival. And as an artistic director, I mean, that's something that you do have a, a little bit of control over. I know that um, even this past year, um, you guys had the festival uh, very recently in October, at the end of October. Um, and uh, I think that I saw so many, um, specifically African-American film critics or people who were just fans who were going to your festival and talking about it. And it seemed like a different kind of experience than what I usually see at different film festivals. You know, for instance, you are one person who has uh, often called out Cannes for being, um, you know, not inclusive of asking African-American critics to even attend. Yeah, I mean, Cannes is an extreme example. I was there and they played the latest Spike Lee film, I did a call out asking for other African-American critics and found like one person, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is not great for reviewing um, a new Spike Lee movie. Um, But it's, and that's obviously it's, and it's a problem in, um, it's a problem in the States too. Cannes is almost so far behind that they, they have so much radical work to do, but other festivals that are trying really hard, it's sometimes at those festivals that it gets even a little bit more um, tricky because what there are a lot of festivals now who are promoting diversity, but what that often means is, you know, I'm sure you've seen it like a women in film panel mm-hmm. or they'll have some, they'll bring you know, a token black person on a panel talking about things. Mm -hmm. And it's just not very fun. And it just feels a bit like a hamster wheel. That kind of like, like not real progress is being made, even Mm -hmm. though the intentions are there. So what we've tended to do and is just invite very invite, you know, I, I don't invite, sadly, I like straight white men quite a lot, but I just don't invite many to the festival. I just feel like they're represented enough and they invite a lot of other people. And when there's that many um, like people of color critics and filmmakers, it's great because they don't have to talk about diversity. They can just like talk about film and talk about art. And um, so it's a relief in a way. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, um, I feel like it's how it should be. Like, it just is, it, it, it's weird, April, because it gives people a chance to, like, oftentimes when you have, like, a token person of color, mm-hmm. that person has to represent their race. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's, you're, like, everybody is so different. And some, one of the people who were in this, um, um, conference we do called the Black Creators Forum, said, um, when I'm, when, I don't have to speak for black people when I'm talking to black people. And so we let people just kind of be their own weird selves instead of having to represent their race or gender. And so you're right, it is a release. And it's also just a chance for people. And it's a, it's a different 
kind of diversity, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, going back to something that you were talking about um, with Jim Jarmusch uh, coming to your festival and talking about ghosts, I know that you had a kind of um, semi-formal focus on some kind of ghost stories within the last uh, uh, festival lineup of genre films. Can you talk a little bit about the role of genre films in um, in your festival and in or festivals in general and, you know, how this kind of came about? Sure. Um, part of this was accidental of the timing. Halloween happened to fall um, during our festival. So, of course, we had to do something. And it happened to fall when we were doing our Black Creators Forum. So we played um, the wonderful documentary on Shutter Horror Noir, and then we played a film featured in that, um, Blackula. We also played a new kind of ghosty horror film in Fabric. Um, and so we had this very Halloween themes um, on on October 31st. But the other theme was kind of accidental. We um, we had a, every year we have a retrospective of a kind of indie hero. We've had Abel Ferrara and Hong Sang Soo. And this year we had a filmmaker who's a little bit less known named Sarah Driver. And she's actually the partner of Jim Jarmusch. Um, but having them both there was kind of coincidental. Um, and I love her work. I discovered it in anthology a few years ago and um, basically brought the retrospective that they did, including two ghost films that she chose, Cat People and Kuroneko. I think I said that right. I um, I, hope, I hope I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I hope I did. Um, and and um, we uh, and you know and the thing about her films is they're so strange and weird and cool and they're all kind of ghost films. Some more explicitly ghost films, like this movie called When Pigs Fly from the '90s with um, Marianne Faithful as as barmaid ghost who kind of rescues um uh, uh a jazz musician and um this other film she made called sleepwalk which i think is like a masterpiece and it's so strange it's almost hard to describe but they are a lot of her films are especially about the ghost of city life you know mm-hmm. like when you're in a city you're in not just the space of so many people, but so much history in every space. And her films are really about that, but they're also about um, sort of technically, stylistically, just how film itself, like projection, especially the old school, like topper ghost film style, like Mm -hmm. it's just like a, that's what a ghost is. It's a projection. It's someone that's, it's a person who's both there and not there and they exist and they don't exist. And that's what all of film is. And her film really taps into that. She's also really influenced by um, Chakra Vet. Her films are so good. And I really hope more people will see them. They're not, I don't think they're available on streaming, but there is a DVD an interesting thing in having both of them there, like we had Jim Jarmusch, there's a 
you know, the ghost of Elvis is in Mystery Train. And yeah. there's like, his, we had his latest film too, The Dead Don't Die, which is a zombie film. And before that was a vampire film, but in these kind of cheeky ways. And I, this is, I probably shouldn't say this on the record, but I feel like you can feel that Jarmusch is influenced by Sarah Driver in mm-hmm. some ways and by this like very specific ghostly kind of style that she has. Um, so yeah, it was really, so it really was influenced by her, but then it just came up in other things. We also had the new Maddie Diep film, Atlantique, mm-hmm. which is also a ghost film. And um, yeah, I'm as far as genre, I'm kind of a scaredy cat. I'm definitely a watch between my fingers kind of person. Sure, yeah. But <laughs> so I'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a I'm I'm a bit of a I'm not an expert there, but um I love I just can't get enough of ghost films and Memphis is a city of ghosts. Uh, Miriam, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today about what you're doing at Indie Memphis and how can people find you and find the film festival. Um, the film festival um, is uh, just online, Indie Memphis. Um, I think it's just IndieMemphis.com. I um, am on Twitter at MimBale, um, and often um, I've posted my favorite ghost films there before, so probably will again. And um, yeah, it was so nice to talk to you, April. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Some preppy girl a few years ago ran over this guy's daughter. Jesus. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.